here in the 11FS office in London for episode 93 of Blockchain Insider, the weekly show dedicated to the news of where blockchain and cryptography meet the changing worlds of finance, tech, and consumer privacy. Today we bring you France creates a regulatory framework for tokens, the SEC might let Blockstack be, and banks abandon XRP. All this and more on today's Blockchain Insider. I'm Simon Taylor, and I'm reunited once more with Colin G. Platt, a.k.a. Chief Shill Officer at PTK, a.k.a. Uh, the head of the PTK Foundation, a.k.a. the richest man in the world. How are you? Actually, actually, you just promoted me several times. I am only the Chief Pseudoscientist of the PTK Foundation. Uh, Chief Pseudoscientist. Well, thanks, thanks for that, Pat. Uh, you're welcome. That, Promotions we can happen. Invisible promotions, they happen everywhere. How does it feel to be the richest man in the world and still live near a field? I'm liking that, that that's uh, still happening. Well, you know, if, you, if you're going to be rich, you've got to live next to a field, right? That's kind of part of the thing. I think it's the only way. <laughs> if you're going to be rich, you've got to live near a field. That's, that's just information that you can use back at your bank. Let's get on with the news, Colin. Um, some interesting stories this week. Um, I think some of them around uh, the increasing legitimacy of various token sales. And uh, the first one comes from a story from Coindesk. Uh, Blockstack have filed with the SEC to raise $50 million in a Reg A plus crypto token sale. And of course, Blockstack um, aims to create infrastructure for the decentralized internet. They've announced this uh, 50 million raise that in a way that would leverage the SEC's Reg A crowdfunding exemption. And in total, um, there's 295 million STX tokens that are going to be offered for 30 cents each. And they stated the net proceeds of the offering will be used to accelerate the development of its decentralized computing stack and ecosystem. This all seems weirdly sensible for a token sale, uh, Colin. Yeah, I don't like it at all. Um, No, it's good that they're doing stuff correctly. Um, Awesome that they're doing stuff correctly, in fact. Um, I know a lot of different um, banks are looking at uh, how they can leverage the tokens as a format and insert something that they like in it, which is uh, ownership of a legitimate company. Um, One of the discussions I've been having with banks uh, very recently has been around, you know, Tokens may be interesting, um, but like all of the assets are of very low quality um, and we kind of need to do a purge uh, before we can actually start talking about how these might gain true legitimacy. And this is the right approach without taking a view on whether block stacks is a good investment or not. Um, and I do like that they call it STX because I think of sticks, like the band. <laughs> All right, yeah, get that in there. Um, so what, Come sail away. <laughs> I think what's interesting to me about this is that uh, for a long time, ICOs and tokens were obviously stupid. Banks were never going to touch them because of how badly some of them were done. But none of us were saying the idea is stupid. And actually, the fact that uh, somebody's following the path to do it properly long after the ICO hype, and this is a significant raise. Uh, it's interesting timing given where the market market is. Um, do you think this is going to set a trend or is this going to be an exception to the rule? I'm still on the fence on that one. Um, I think that it will set a trend in so far that uh, it could push out a lot of crowdfunding type initiatives. Um, I don't know if this will go as far as to say, and, and which is kind of the bigger question, change the way public markets work just quite yet. Um, and and I think that there's a lot of other questions that need to come up. One of the really interesting things I, I saw about this um, elsewhere, I believe that they um, disclosed that it cost them on an ongoing basis of being regulated about two and a half million US dollars, um, which 
shocked a lot of people thinking that uh, what we've been saying for a while, they think this should just be something that like you sign a piece of paper and the SEC says, yes, go about your business. Um, it is actually a very expensive thing to do on an ongoing basis. Uh, so uh, that's a wake up call. And I think that will stop a lot of people of, with lower quality projects or people trying to promote them and, and all of a sudden become STO promoters in the same way they were ICO promoters. It's interesting that uh, $50 million, if it's using crowdfunding regs, that's a huge crowdfunding. I mean, we've seen some of the fintechs go for crowdfunding. I think the, one of the biggest crowdfunds in, in history was was Monzo in their recent round, who I think put, a, put out $20 million worth of crowdfunding. Uh, and that was taken up pretty quickly. But that's with you know 1.5 million customers, uh, a banking license, um, investment from major VCs in Europe and the US. Like, there was a lot of momentum behind that organization. Now, you know, Blockstack have been around for some time. They've got some credible investors. Um, they've um, seemed to have taken the patient route to, to goal. Um, but at the same time, that is really, really quite sizable given where they're at. But de- you know, internet infrastructure uh, is an interesting investable asset class. Uh, if you look at the type of things Blockstack are producing, uh, it's a whole suite of tools. And there's real code there. There's real products that are live that are somewhat working, built on different platforms. They seem to have focused on doing and executing and, and the business of, of making product that people might want and be useful. So, um, you know, here's hoping there's more of that in the future. Uh, We actually interviewed Ryan Shea, who's the co-founder of Blockstack, back in episode 29. Uh, So do check out episode 29 if you want to learn more about Blockstack and what they're up to. Um, Colin, there's another story that's sort of linked to that this week. Um, I've picked this up from Reuters, uh, and this is about France asking their EU partners to adopt the cryptocurrency regulation that they've put together. Is that why you moved to France? Is that why you're in a field? Well, you know, the the French finance minister did just come out and say he wants to make France like a crypto powerhouse uh, or whatever that means. So I'm, of course, once again, ahead of that trend um, here in Nantes as one of the very few people in Nantes actually doing anything in this. Um, I I obviously joke. But what was really, I think, interesting um, and and quite scary um, at the same time was France passed something called uh, the Loi Pacte. Uh, basically, it's it's part of a much larger set of reforms where they're trying to make France a more desirable economy to invest in and, and build a business in. Um, and one of the things they wanted to do was open up to new ways to do things like crowdfunding. Um, and one of the ways that they were trying to do that, one of the avenues, is specifically around STOs or ICOs, utility tokens. Um, and, and they saw this as a, a good opportunity to lead uh, and push regulations across Europe. Um, I think that they've paid attention to what's happened in places like Malta, uh, as well as in places like Switzerland. Um, one of the other really interesting things is the the finance minister. Um, very interesting in France. The finance minister is also um, uh, responsible for things like innovation. Um, is He pushed uh, banks to open up banking accounts for crypto-related companies, which was very hard in France. So I've spoken with a lot of French-based companies that actually moved to Geneva or Zurich uh, to set up business because they may have been able to raise money in France, but then they couldn't get a bank account to put it into. So they moved to Switzerland. And um, as you can imagine, uh, once the money's been raised in France, they'd like them to pay taxes in France. Um, So that's quite good. So what does this regulation actually say and do that's that's net new? Because, I mean, the, the AMF issued some guidance quite some time ago around, you know, how, how this sits. Mm-hmm. Um, it looks now like it's passing into legislature and beyond and it's become law. What does this allow me to do in France that I that was ambiguous elsewhere? 
Yeah, so what what it kind of opens up as far as I understand, and, and we should get a French regulatory authority on here, is it opens up the idea of having a utility token uh, in French law to say, look, you can have this token that is something that you can buy and you can use within a blockchain. Uh, it also opens up the idea of having a security token that represents uh, ownership of your company. Uh, and this is something that leverages what they did on, on what they called mini bonds, which is a, a regulation they came out with a couple of years ago. Um, so I think it's it's very good for that. The other thing is it, it reinforces some of the rules around what is a cryptocurrency or crypto asset exchange platform. So something like a Binance or a Kraken or whatever it is inside of French regulation, which is based on the way French rules operate. They need to have an explanation of what it is so they can put it in a little box. Bureaucracy is a, is a French word for a reason. <laughs> so it is. But I guess um, if I'm in a bank, what would be my business case for wanting to look at this more? Because, um, or, or even if I'm you know, sort of somebody who has worked in a bank and just thinks that the whole cap markets thing is woefully inefficient, what could I do now that I couldn't do before? Because I, I start to think about, um, you know, kind of build it, building on the previous story, you, know, you could potentially look at new routes of crowdfunding that are um, more cost efficient, easier to trace, different types of platforms for managing who owns what security, um, and that maybe changes that supply chain. Um, but in terms of the utility token side of it, having a clear definition means there's a separation between the activity I do to raise financing versus to use a platform that I build at a later date um, that people may buy, sell, and trade. So it's almost created this this. Um, these two pots of which a token can be. And the second one, the utility token, is like the same as a postage stamp. It has utility. I can use it to send a piece of mail, but also people trade this thing. And when it's traded, it behaves very differently to when it's used. Yeah, I, I think that the more imminent thing is uh, if you work in a bank, uh, in that part of the bank, is uh, if you work in a French bank, you obviously realize a lot of these things get pushed from the top down. And if you were responsible for looking at opening a bank account for a cryptocurrency or blockchain related company before and, and could say no, um, they might question why you say no if uh, you would otherwise pass it if it didn't have crypto in the name. Um, so I, I think that we will see more of that being opened. And I know the, the French government has tried to make it easier for fintechs uh, very broadly to open bank accounts because that has been difficult. Um, I, I think the other thing is before you start getting into changing it is just looking at how are banks offering other more complicated service to something like a cryptocurrency or a utility token, uh, banking these things, bringing them to market, helping them raise money. Uh, not everybody wants to go down the ICO route, even if they operate and help ICOs, and they might just need a bank loan. Is there still a credibility issue for the idea of tokens? I mean, I think there will be for a long time. And, and one of the things that uh, Bruno Le Maire, the, the finance minister, highlighted was uh, money laundering as being a potential uh, risk. Another risk out there dealing with uh, not paying taxes, which is another part of what they're trying to do. This is the other thing that French like more than bureaucracy is taxes. Um, they, they've figured out ways that uh, hopefully can make that easier to tax profits on these companies. As a result, um, hopefully they can they can start to lay some of those fears from the companies that are actually trying to operate correctly within these regimes. And there are definitely lots of companies in the space trying to do things correctly. Um, it looks dangerously like there's green shoots here of, of optimism in terms of Blockstack following the rules of the SEC, um, the, the, the French rules now in terms of being real clarity. Uh, I think the question now is who's going to build a product that is useful to its customers and get some scale. Like that's still the bit that's missing. 
Yeah, yeah, I I absolutely agree. Um, and I think that there's kind of the one other thing that we haven't tapped into that kind of comes as part and partial of these is um, the, the French government also has a, a regime that looks very similar to the UK SIP um, set up for your pension fund, where you can actually invest this and do a self uh was it self-instructed or self-directed? Self-directed investments. That's the one. So in France, we have something similar. Um, and basically, they said you could put cryptocurrencies in that. Wow. Um, so you can have Bitcoin and leave it in your retirement fund. Um, people are going to need to be banked for that. They're going to need to have custody if they want to go down that route. They're going to need to know a lot about these assets. Um, and I think that that's your big green shoot that you're talking about is how do we offer these services to people that have heard about them? And I have been to one too many meetups where people who are um, at that age uh, or at the age where they're withdrawing pension talking about getting into cryptocurrencies for potential appreciation. And that's, as we've talked about, very, very risky and maybe something that is not the brightest idea to be doing in any kind of massive shape. So, um, yeah. Yeah. It's one thing to have uh, 0.5% of your pension fund on crypto just for the, you know, it, it could have massive upside. It probably won't. But if it did, at least you've got a, an opportunity in your portfolio. Uh, it's another thing to withdraw your fund entirely and go all in, which would be you know, extremely um not sensible. Uh, of course, we do not give out investment advice. Always seek one investment advice from a professional. Um, but yeah, you can see how that would go wrong. Uh, listen, Colin, we've got to move to the next story. This one comes from Forbes. Um, Forbes covering a lot of crypto stories still, even though uh, we're in the depths of crypto winter. Um, this one is uh, Coinbase and Visa are making Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Ripple's XRP and Litecoin payments a reality. So Coinbase has teamed up with Visa and launching the Coinbase card, which are allows users to spend crypto as effortlessly as money in their bank. This Visa debit card, which has a $6.50 card issuance fee, uh, can be used uh, to spend Coinbase, Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Litecoin balances in millions of locations around the world. Um, by converting the cryptocurrency to fiat when the card is used, the merchant or the store gets paid in traditional fiat currency. Haven't we seen this several times before, Colin? Yeah, I was... How much? I mean, you you work with this stuff. How much does it cost to actually like issue a card for a for um, a startup or somebody? Uh, between two and four dollars, depending on where you are in the world and what type of card. So if they're in the in the UK launching a Visa debit card, they they're making a little bit, but it's probably just enough to cover the cost of marketing on this. Uh, the marketing and the postage and the chance that it could get lost, the fraud risk. There's a whole bunch of stuff you bake into that cost. Uh, depends on your level of confidence on user adoption as well. Um, if you don't think people are going to get adopted it, or if you, th if like, let's say you're playing into um, the thin file market, so um, the immigrant workforce, you see a lot of those cards, like there's Moneys, the fintech in, in the UK, uh, where they'll charge you $4.99 for the card. Um, it's a prepaid card that then has a monthly fee attached. But then for somebody who comes into the UK is paid mostly in cash, it allows them to send money home, transact in e-commerce, get a, uh, a a phone with a you know with a SIM card that's on a monthly recurring bill, maybe get an address and and, and that sort of stuff. So from a financial inclusion standpoint, there's a whole bunch of reasons why um, you're charging for the card is is there, and there are certain segments of society that you'd want to charge for a card for. Versus, you know, if, if I'm getting a, a bank account from you, I expect to get the card with it. So I'm going to give you the card for free, assuming I'm going to get $1,000 a month in deposits or, or something like that, that I can then make that back on. Yeah, and I, I guess like the equivalent in the Coinbase instance here is that they're expecting more trading volume. I mean, I, 
I, I guess Coinbase uh, is, is quite well known that they're not making the the returns that they were before, and this is a, an avenue to try to get people to spend these things, which means hopefully that they'll start you know doing more trading activity, and the, they definitely will take a, a spread on the currency versus what you could buy it on, a, on their professional site, their Coinbase Pro. Um, I, I don't really see a massive advantage for anybody unless you are a very, very wealthy cryptocurrency holder that happens to have a lot of money in Coinbase, in which case I would also ask the question why you have so much money in Coinbase, because uh, that seems risky. I've, maybe they've done some studies on it, but it's it's starting just in the UK, so I guess it's maybe a pretty limited thing. Uh, they want to extend across Europe. What I thought was the most interesting thing out of it, and I'd love to know the, the reason behind it, is uh, though they're starting in the UK and rolling out across Europe, they're allowing uh, Bitcoin, Ether, and Litecoin in the UK, not XRP, but when they extend to Europe, they will allow XRP. So I wonder if there's a, a regulatory uh, reason in the UK that applies to XRP and, and doesn't apply to Europe. Uh, we're always very curious uh, why they, they make differences across cryptocurrencies and XRP being a large one. Uh, that makes me pose the question. Yeah, interesting. It's interesting that it's Visa branded as well. You typically see the fintechs with an e-money license um, in Europe tend to go with MasterCard. Uh, this is a partnership with Visa. Uh, Visa tend to do things at a, a very big scale with the larger organizations. MasterCard are the choice of card brand for the fintechs. Um, so there's something interesting in the fintech space sort of playing out there. Um, you know, what's, what's Visa's angle on this? And is this marketing from a Visa perspective? Do they really think that there's a whole bunch of crypto payments coming because like what if if especially with bitcoin and eth and uh litecoin these naturally volatile assets why would i want to treat them as as if they're fiat cash they're not they like why would i ever want to spend them it's more of an, an asset that one would hope would appreciate um versus you know, some sort of fiat-backed on or pegged stablecoin. Uh, if that was something I was paid in and I could use that, then then fine. And also, I imagine the people that are making, you know, that are that are trading regularly and and doing well enough to have an income ha- already have some other card. So and and probably don't store a lot of that in Coinbase. But maybe there is an audience there. Maybe there's a bunch of people that regularly use Coinbase that make enough of an income from it that they would want to use an everyday card. Um, and it's easier to spend it directly from Coinbase than it is to get it out through the banking system more traditionally. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I have lots of questions. Uh, I, I don't know. I don't know exactly who they're, they're pitching this thing to and why, why they would want to use it. But, you know, maybe that exists. <laughs> All right, speaking of pitching, um, this episode is brought to you by R3. Uh, developed by R3, Corda is years ahead of other blockchain platforms in terms of privacy, security, scalability, and interoperability. And because Corda was built to meet the stringent requirements of highly regulated industries, uh, in particular financial services, it can be used by firms of any type, size, and in any industry. With Corda, every business in every industry can leverage the power of blockchain, and a free trial of Corda Enterprise is available at r3.com. Head over to check that out now, um, and to uh, you know, just generally give a shout out to Todd McDonald, friend of the show, who was on the show last week. Um, Alrighty, uh, on with the news. Theblockcrypto.com, uh, ING Bank are experimenting with zero knowledge proofs. I think they have been for quite some time. Um, just remind us what a zero knowledge proof is. Uh, good question. Um, <laughs> so, as, as far as I understand, and, and what Petrit was talking to me about before the show is, I just called it voodoo magic numbers. Um, so basically, the, the theory behind uh, zero knowledge proofs is 
it's very fancy cryptography, which uh, has been banded about by mathematicians for a little while now. Um, and essentially, there are two different varieties. Uh, the first is your more, I guess, quote unquote, standard zero knowledge proofs. And what they're trying to say is uh, Simon and I can communicate in the open world uh, and share secrets with each other. And we can pass on to a third party, let's say Petrit, that uh, X is true. So Simon and I know the details about X, but we want uh, Petrit to know without knowing too much information about it that X is true. So that, that secret could be uh, I am more than 18 years old. Petra doesn't need to know how old I am, but he just needs to know that I am more than 18 years old, whereas Simon might know exactly how old I am. Um, that's that's kind of the basics of it. Um, the other one that ING has been experimenting with is, is a range. So they take a number and say, all right, Simon and I know a number between one and a thousand. Um, and we are going to tell Petra that it's a number between 900 and 950 without telling him exactly what the number is. Um, they're playing with this thing, trying to figure out a, a range of use cases that it could fit into. I know that Maya Zahivi has been working on this for a little while. Uh, it, it's super interesting, and we should definitely get her on the show to talk about this in more depth um, because it's well beyond my my realm of understanding. Magic voodoo numbers. Yeah, I think uh, the, the best metaphor that Maya ever told me was um, if you really want to simplify uh, a zero-knowledge proof, um, then if you imagine the old book Where's Wally or Where's Waldo for the Americans, um, then you, I could prove that there is in fact uh, a Wally and or a Waldo uh, on this page, but I wouldn't show you where they are. Um, and this actually goes back to a funny story. Um, there was a story in the New York libraries where pranksters were heading into the New York libraries and replacing all the Waldo books with a version of the Waldo book where Waldo wasn't actually on the page. So they were terrorizing kids uh, who actually couldn't find Waldo and were ending up crying. Um, so they developed a system whereby the librarian would occasionally um, come up with a librarian proof that they had checked the book and Waldo was in fact there, but they wouldn't tell the kids where Waldo was. Interesting. <laughs> the, I, I love the story. The story is actually more interesting than the math, probably. <laughs> well, I don't know. The math's pretty cutting edge. I mean, you could imagine. So, uh, consider a world in which um, you know the primary way to uh, manage secure communications between a lot of large organizations today and their customers is you know uh, either shared secrets, passwords. Um, you know, device authentication, biometrics. This introduces something else where uh, I can prove that something is true without sending the data in the clear. Um, that is useful, uh, albeit potentially quite slow technology. It's interesting that an ING is, is really working on that and uh, they're looking for those real life use cases. Uh, I can see why a bank would be extremely interested in this. Um, and of course, as they move from um, zero knowledge proofs uh, around an individual fact towards range proofs, you can actually end up with a performance increase because the big criticism of zero knowledge proofs is they're incredibly slow. Um, so if I could prove that um, a trade is executed and the regulator can see it, um, I could still I could potentially produce something equivalent to um, a dark pool um, whereby I have the commercial confidentiality that means people can't front run me, but uh, the regulator could see those trades and at some point unlock the ability to access them because they would have a, a, another key. Um, but they would simply see these trades are happening, but not between whom um, and for what, but that those trades had followed this rule. Um, so there's a whole bunch of um, clever things that you can do on the back of it, but I think it's safe to say this is early days for this technology. Um, you, know, you have labs experimenting with it. 
I would recommend, uh, you know, if you've not come across it, then to uh, a cursory Googling. Uh, and yes, we need to get Maya on the show to uh, delve into this into more depth. And I think our friends over at Clearmatics just released something over the last week or so um, that's an implementation of zero cache on their Ethereum client. Um, so for people looking at Ethereum uh, and want to play with it, uh, I think that's an option as well. I think they call it Zeth, like our good friend Zeth. Another friend of the show. Uh, indeed. <laughs> Shout out, Zeth. Um, I, there's something to be said for increasingly this narrative of cryptography upgraded, um, of what's coming out of the world of crypto is more usable cryptography for financial services. Um, and we're seeing um, labs and organizations take that more seriously. Um, and speaking of learning um, from crypto, um, I think in possibly the most literal interpretation of that ever, um, story comes from the block crypto.com. The IMF and the World Bank are launching a learning coin to teach staff about blockchain. In order to learn more about cryptocurrencies, the IMF and World Bank have actually set up a private blockchain and learning coin. Learning coin, of course, is a quasi-cryptocurrency. It doesn't have any value and is inaccessible outside of the institution. But the idea is it's uh, to allow staff to learn more about distributed ledger tech, um, creating a hub for knowledge, uh, and also having uh, content available in an app, for instance, research uh, videos and presentations. By achieving these educational milestones, they're hoping that the uh, staff will gain learning coins, which you know will be able to redeem for rewards. We've we've seen sort of a number of organisations have a go at this, but actually, what stood out to me about this was a the humility and b the brilliance of just naming it learning coin, so that you could do almost nothing but interpret this as a as an experiment that was being used to learn and educate people. Whereas you know, like the crypto press loves to take uh, oh hey, there was a story I saw earlier about Bank of America uh, teaching their staff about Bitcoin internally, and somebody took it as like oh that means that Bank of America is going to steadily march towards cryptocurrency. It's like no they're doing some training so that people are aware of what's happening in the industry. So this was quite smart, I think, by the IMF and the World Bank. Um, not to breathe too much into I, it. I, I want to get my hands on some learns, whatever they're calling this coin. I'm calling it learns from uh, now on. You want to get your hands on some learns? <laughs> are you going to shill it like you did uh, PTK? Well, um, numbers go up? Oh, you know I will. <laughs> no, but you know, if they really want a learning, they're going to learn that there's no such thing as a private blockchain and there's no way they can keep it within the uh, the confines of their two institutions if they are communicating on anything other than a private wire. Um, and, and it's eventually going to make its way to a DEX, isn't it? We know this is going to happen. That's how they're going to learn. Is It's going to go from like, it's a learning coin with no value to, hey, this is a coin supported by the World Bank and IMF. Let's go pump this thing to high hell. Yeah, you can see that happening. Um, love a bit of Colin trolling. Um, but good that people are getting educated. And um, speaking of people on the learning curve, story from um, Coindesk.com. Uh, there's a Japanese bank who are abandoning their work with SBI Ripple's MoneyTap app. Um, so Japan's fifth biggest bank said it would be cancelling the remittance service and uh, they haven't given a reason. Uh, but just last month, MoneyTap received investment from 13 banks that joined the project as shareholders but don't appear to be using the technology yet. Um, so another trial trial um, was quite a public one. I think remittance is always an interesting challenge. Uh, what do you think is going on here, Colin? Uh, I think that they, I mean, they didn't give a reason. Um, I, I suspect that uh, they did some investigation and realized that like there wasn't a there there, uh, as many other companies have, have done. Um, and it's, it's interesting to see that maybe because they have a lot of money invested in it, uh, SBI keeps trying to push this boulder up the hill. Um, 
good luck to them. But uh, I, I think as we're seeing time and time again with Ripple, although there's some interesting ideas in there um, and, and some very good thinking at the base of it, a lot of time it just bleeds into, uh, well, this is something that we can achieve more efficiently in more traditional manners and just upgrading the the Japanese uh, payment system to look like, I don't know, faster payments in the UK is probably a more efficient thing. And if you really only have three and then eventually 13 banks investing in it, not even using it, um, and now we're down to two banks, uh, it, it's hard to thread that needle. I think people like to poo-poo um, sort of the front-end work that goes into getting a product that customers love. Uh, but actually, it's super important. If you don't have um, a product used by and loved by a thousand customers, you don't have a product. So like, this is the, the thing whereby it seems great that there's a new infrastructure there, but it risks being tech for tech's sake. If the front-end, if the customer proposition side of that isn't really standing up and it isn't solving a problem for customers. We, we talk to clients a lot about the minimum lovable product and how do you get to that minimum lovable product. Um, and often that means using the most bog standard immediately available tech stack to test something quickly to see if the proposition stands up and the tech qualifies itself in as being the best solution to the problem, not the only solution to a problem. Uh, and I think it's just a, a change of approach that could be handy. Alrighty, um, story from uh, Cointelegraph.com. Uh, Nestle and Carrefour are going to work with IBM to track mashed potato uh, with a blockchain. Interesting. Um, the uh, brain crypto, uh, French footballer Kylian Mbappe's Twitter was hacked and he asked for Bitcoin. Um, CCN.com PayPal director predicts Bitcoin at a million dollars within a decade. Uh, that's an interesting one. Um, Coindesk.com crypto exchange Bitthumb posts a $180 million lost for 2018. Um, and story we didn't cover this week. There's been a lot of hype and news around Bitcoin BSV. Um, Colin, like, what, what's some of the noise here? Some major exchanges are delisting BSV and all kinds of good stuff? Yeah, I guess some very litigious people have uh, decided to get in a very public fight and sue some people over libel or threaten to sue some people over libel. Um, and Binance, the largest cryptocurrency exchange, decided to delist uh, the cryptocurrency associated uh, very closely with that person. Um, and also, I just saw an article before we jumped on about, uh, in retaliation, our friends over at SBI, who we spoke about just a minute ago with regards to Ripple, um, have decided to, as uh, as uh, revenge for that to delist uh, BCH or Bitcoin Cash, uh, the ABC implementation. Um, so, uh, yeah, that'll be an interesting one. We're going to try to get Stephen Paley, um, who's a lawyer that covers a lot of these things, on the show next week to talk about the ongoing implications and um, of, of listing a coin and what that might entail to delist it, especially in these circumstances. But yeah, there's uh, there's a lot of ongoing legal aspects. So it's probably best if uh, our, our freewheeling discussion of things doesn't necessarily cover this in too much depth. All right, let's veer away from that and veer into Tweet of the Week. Tweet, 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 tweet. It's the Tweet of the Week. Tweet of the Week. The Twitter week this week comes from Rich MakerDAO, or Rich at MakerDAO uh, on Twitter. Uh, and the tweet reads, um, executive vote. The stability fee has been raised by 4% to a new total of 11.5% per year. The MakerDAO voting community has chosen to enact a new stability fee. If you voted, thank you for helping shape the future of decentralized finance. Vote.makerdao.com. 
Maker is my favorite, favorite coin because if we thought there was a lot of drama in the rest of it, this is like a microcosm of drama. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like um, they, Rick Burton, who is not Rick, uh, Rich Maker Dow, he's a different account, Rick Burton, he's good fun, uh, is a big fan of this stuff and talked a bit about it a few shows ago. Um, but basically, the idea behind Maker Dow is a decentralized central bank to create a stable coin uh, that tracks the price of the dollar. And, and basically, they're having an ongoing issue that it uh, doesn't track the price of a dollar. It, it goes on a regular basis below the price of a dollar. Um, and so what they do is they try to raise the interest rate of taking out loans denoted in the stablecoin DAI. Um, and it went from about 2% to 4.5% to 7% to now 11.5% annualized interest, uh, which is quite steep uh, considering the low interest rate environment in anything else but arguably probably still too low. Uh, it'll be interesting to see where this thing goes, but I think a lot of people have learned that being a central banker is not as easy as they thought it was. Yeah, I mean, if your interest rate's exploding that fast, it suggests you're having a real hard time maintaining any sort of um, consistency in, in the rate. And this just could this could really accelerate. I mean, you can see examples where we see hyperinflation um, and you see interest rates uh, well into the double digits. And that is is terrible for an economy. Uh, it turns out like that the technology is not everything here. It's getting the economics right. But this is a really interesting public experiment. If nothing else, it's tremendously interesting watching this play out. But it's almost like people are learning um, central banking by doing it rather than like looking at central banking and going, what could we, what what works and what doesn't? And, and I guess central banking's hard, right? Because it's, it's the cutting edge of economics. And it turns out these people know what they're talking about um, and have been at it for a couple of hundred years. Um, but still, I, I'm generally supportive of people experimenting. But when it's got people's money and livelihoods on the lines, um, this does seem to create a, a whole lot of drama. Yeah, go figure that one. Money on the line, people getting upset. And they, they also had like a, a lot of accusations in the last week or so about like the way that Maker itself is run and, and there's a foundation behind it because, of course, there's a foundation behind it and, and where they spend their money. So uh, this will be a fun one to return to on a regular basis, I assume, in the next uh, six to 12 months. All right, Colin. Well, that's it. This um, podcast is brought to you listeners by uh, 11FS. We're the challenger consultancy working to shape the next generation of financial services. Uh, we create truly digital propositions starting at the customer uh, and working back to the problem, uh, working back to what should you actually build, and then maybe even thinking about technology and build too. Um, if you want to hear more Blockchain Insider every single Thursday, hit the subscribe button and throw us a review, please. Uh, and also uh, remember that Colin G. Platt is the richest man in the world so where can people find out more about you Colin uh, they can't I've gone dark because I'm the richest person in the world uh, but you can still find me on Twitter at Colin G Platt alright um, we're just looking a lot more like evil Kermit because you've gone dark um, and you can find me at SYTaylor on Twitter or Simon at 11FS.com uh, a big big thank you to our amazing production team here at 11FS producer Petrit and Alex our editor thank you for listening we'll have more Blockchain Insider next week goodbye for now